Hi, and welcome to Under Our Skin Podcast. Live people ignore the strange and unusual. I myself am strange and unusual. <laughs> you look like a regular girl to me. <laughs> Hi, welcome to Under Our Skin Podcast. We're here today with Gia Rose at White Oak Tattoo in Westchester, Pennsylvania. So, Hi, Gia. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm pretty good. Thank you. So, what we're going to do is we're going to start at the beginning uh, with you. So, where, where did you grow up? Where are you from originally? Uh, I was born and raised in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Oh, oh, that's far from here. Very far. Well, pretty far. Okay. <laughs> and, um, and you grew up there, you went to school there and, and high school and all that? So like your yeah, youth yeah. was pretty... Uh, born and raised until I was about 16, 17, I left home and oh. started traveling and kind of didn't stop until I was 31. Wow, it's a long trip. Yeah, it was a long trip. <laughs> so, so when you were 16, you left. Did you, uh, did you finish, you finished high school? Nope, dropped out of high school. Um, <clears throat> I had a very unusual upbringing my parents are I guess what you could call intellectual hippies uh (laughs) so uh, both chemists um who eventually turned to being uh, my father's an environmental engineer my mother's a botanist and a horticulturalist and I went to um like the Steiner I went through the Steiner school system which is kind of familiar with that it's kind of um oddly culty <laughs> so but it it's more about like it, it kind of has its roots in quaker like belief systems and really? yeah very passive and anti-violence and more on uh the artistic aspect of creativity those kinds of things wow. um through the steiner school system yeah and is that is that a, that's a private school system? Or? Yeah, it's oh. private. Um, and I only went as a small child, and then I went to um, public alternative schools. Mm-hmm. So uh, <laughs> you know, this whole like being an unusual individual uh, was never never felt outcast because right. I was surrounded by other weirdos. <laughs> we were all weirdos, yeah, yeah. so there was never the sense of like not belonging you know like everybody was encouraged to be odd you know if that was their kind of piece of cake their whatever um and so it wasn't until later adulthood that I felt a difference between myself and like other people Mm -hmm. um because all of that was very much like my parents sheltered us kind of in the opposite way that most maybe sheltered people are from normalcy um, and then when I decided to stop school, it was a very thought out decision and, um, my parents accepted and encouraged me to, to chase my dreams essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was, it was, there was a lot of, um, emphasis on like self care and self raising. Um, if I wanted a job, I got a job. My parents encouraged um, us children to take care of ourselves and make those decisions. So, you know, I never had a curfew. I got a pager, uh, wow. <laughs> you know, it was like, it was very much, uh, independent upbringing and all I'm in the middle of five kids. We were all that way. Yeah, I was just going to ask you. Yeah. So, um, oh, so, so you're I, the middle child, huh? I'm the middle child <laughs> and we're all, incredibly different (laughs) so different yes 
but you know my parents encouraged that kind of individuality and um yeah so I had kind of hit the road I fell into hanging out with like punk kids I guess in the 90s grunge and punk Mm -hmm. um in my high school and that led to hanging out with I guess what you'd call them now like I guess crusty punks (laughs) but at the time it wasn't kind of a thing it was to me they were train riders Right, um, travelers. Travelers, and that was very romantic to me. So I started doing that. I started riding trains and really? hitchhiking around the country, and that ended up taking me all over the place. Sure. And there's a lot in there. I lived on a riverboat for a while. Really? Yeah. And, <laughs> and so, but so you left. You didn't leave your house. You didn't leave home for for a bad home situation. You no. just left home to explore. Because I I think a yeah. lot. A lot of kids who are who are travelers and cross punks like that, yeah. they leave because they have bad right. bad home life. Yes, I mean my, it was more like I mean my parents were very much when we were all sixteen, seventeen, we were out. Like it was either you get a job and you you have to pay your own rent, or you're you know like you can't stay here for free. Um, and that I think is because my mother, I love her. Um, she was a young mom. She had my older sister at fifteen, and she oh, was wow. on her own. And so she has this very um, you know, independent, you have to take care of yourself kind of mentality because that's right. the way she was raised and she raised herself that way. So it was basically like, you know, you, you got to go, but it was normal, you know, so you're on your own. <laughs> sure. So so I made those choices because I didn't um, know any better at the time. Right. Um, and so, you know, in the in the world, in the scheme of things, I had a very like loving upbringing um but we were very much um kind of on our own at, at the age of 16 was like you're out did you find that having a loving upbringing and then jumping i mean did you go pretty much right from right from home to in, into traveling yeah so i mean i so, i skipped out on pretty much anything normal like I never went to prom I never graduated high school I never you know what I mean I didn't do the normal kind of things that most people do I didn't have a sweet 16 you know um I didn't get a first car you know like those kinds of things I think that in western civilization and especially in the United States that people kind of equivalate these like markers of of maturing and growing up and it really wasn't until my 30s that I started to recognize that the way that I was raised and then raised myself was very different. Um, and that my parents were very good at parenting us as very little children. But mm-hmm. then when we became adults, I don't think they understood how to parent us as adults. It was just we were all of a sudden equal at 16. Right. You know what I mean? Sure. <laughs> yeah, no, of course, it's, it's diff- different to have a, a two-year-old kid than to have a kid that yeah. can think about what you're saying. and Right. And- so I think a lot of, like looking back, um, there's a lot of people I know now that would that would say like, "Oh my God, your parents let you do what?" Yeah. <laughs> so, but so going, so from going from from a loving household, you said to, to right into traveling. Do you think you had was there problems connecting with kids who probably f- for the most part came from? the totally opposite situation? Um, no, I don't think so because I think before I left home, my best friend 
was constantly being kicked out of her house. Mm -hmm. And my house was the house where kids went. So, like, my mom would talk with their parents. And so, like, they wouldn't, you know, if they if the cops got called on them or they were had a fight with their parents, they would come to my house. Gotcha. Because my mom was very understanding and very, you know, she yeah. wasn't a typical mother. Um, she wasn't, like, the cool mom where we were not allowed to drink or do drugs or anything like gotcha. that at her house. Um, but she was, like... It was kind of a safe place. Yeah. Um, But so I think I I never had any trouble connecting with people um, because of that at all. Uh, I think more or less like especially because when I started traveling with everybody, I was in the same boat. You know what I mean? Like even though I had loving family, I didn't have any place to go. Right. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Like, we weren't, my family wasn't, like, financially able. We were not wealthy. We were poor. We were, Mm -hmm. you know, on the lower middle class at that time. And um, there's five of us kids. And so it was like, if you want to go to college, you're on your own. If you want to buy a car, you're on your own. If you want to get an apartment, you're on your own. You know, we can, we'll help you where we can. But that's not financial. Um, So I think um, for all intensive purposes, even though I avoided, um the like abusive family system um it was still very much like you're on your own kind of thing and then the things i experienced being out in the world were pretty rough (laughs) i bet well i mean when you're traveling you're certainly on your own for Mm -hmm. for the most part and so how how did you how did you fall into traveling like did you just go hop the first train you saw or did you did you know people already that were doing it i knew people who were doing it um there were a bunch of and it wasn't i don't know it wasn't like a it was just like a cheap way to get places you know and it was also like idealistically romantic you know riding a freight train very american you know like on the road jack Kerouac and you know yeah. this very romantic idea of seeing the country by by being a hobo or whatever <laughs> yeah. um and again you know I'm this 17 18 year old girl at the time um you know and I wasn't taught the I didn't you know I didn't know how to do my hair I didn't know how to do makeup I didn't I didn't know like how to the normal things of taking care of yourself mm-hmm. at, a, at a, as a woman a young woman at that age um and so like the more romantic parts of me were about like seeing the world you know and experiencing sure. the world and so it was very idealistic and i did it i went with a couple other girls and we rode my first train was um we rode to milwaukee uh from kalamazoo michigan and I fell off and landed on my face <laughs> outside oh. of Chicago. Um, and that was terrible, but I was all right. And, yeah, from then on, I fell in love with it, and I rode trains for a couple of years. Um, it's never fast, and it's always horrible when you're doing it. But then when <laughs> you're done, you're like, woohoo, I did that. A lot of great memories, huh? Yeah. Like better in memory than when you're doing it. Oh yeah, totally. Because when you're doing it, you're cold and hungry sure. and sore or really hot, and it's just you know, it's not very comfortable. But I could be thinking of it back, you know, through the eyes of me now as 37, <laughs> looking yeah. back at that and being like, oh god, I'm so miserable. <laughs> did Did you travel with the same uh, that same group of girls, or did you guys kind of mm-hmm. go your? Oh really? For the most part, yeah. Um, I had a traveling partner. She was my best friend, Lena. 
and we stuck together because there's kind of rules that we we'd set for ourselves especially being women or young women um we always traveled in pairs uh we never hitchhiked um unless there was more than one of us and when we did we only took rides from people above a certain age or from from women and um unless we had a guy with us um, we only broke those rules a few times out of desperation and they actually led to some narrow escapes from ending up on forensics files. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I mean being being a woman at all living like that uh, obviously has a lot of risk and then being young on top of that really kind of puts you in the prime uh mm-hmm. prime danger group. Yep. I would think for that. So that's yeah, there were a couple of narrow escapes that either were, um, you know, there was one where some gentleman picked us up, and we usually don't ride in, like, if if a, if someone, we would take a ride from a guy, a man, if he was in a pickup truck, and we could ride in the bed of his truck. Right. We would never sit in the cab, you know? Um, but there was this, we were in Virginia, and... We got on the wrong train, and we ended up going too far south. We were supposed to, to kind of, from Philadelphia, actually. Or, no, is it from New York? I can't remember where. But we ended up too far south, and we ended up in Virginia. Um, and so we had to get off, and we had to hitchhike, because we had to go back north. And um, this guy picked us up, and we couldn't... We were basically in this tiny little town. We didn't really know where. Um, maybe, like, I don't know, 40 miles outside of Richmond somewhere. And there was really nothing around, and it was horrible weather. It was, like, pouring rain, and we were stuck there for, like, two days, and we just could not get a ride out. So we were like, let's at least take whatever we can to the, like, next truck stop, something that's easier to catch, like, a longer ride. Um, So we took this ride, and it was this guy, and he had a pickup truck, and we got in the cab because it was just pouring rain. And um, apparently a lot of people in the South drink and drive at the same time. It's a very common thing, road beers. Um, (laughs) so this gentleman was drinking beer when he picked us up and it wasn't abnormal. (laughs) So it's not like we were like red flag. It was like, yeah, that actually happens a lot for some reason, um, in the South. And he picked us up and he was drinking and, you know, he decided to take us off the highway, which was another bad sign. Like anyone takes you off the highway, but he had pictures of his wife and his kids in his cab. So that always kind of seems like... Yeah, it's kind of calming, right? Yeah, so you're, you know, and you can like kind of be like, oh, is that your wife? Who's your kids? Tell us about them, you know. But he, he got a little sketchy and he ended up pulling a gun out and had a gun and pulled into this gas station and uh, was telling us not to get out of the cab. And it was a very confusing kind of situation because we couldn't tell if he was just being drunk and belligerent or if he was really like dangerous. Yeah, that must have been unnerving. Um, but just at that time, a, a police sheriff pulled into the same gas station. So we immediately got out of the car sure. and left and didn't talk to the cops, just left, wow. walked. You know what I mean? Like, so those like narrow kind of, yeah. you know, yeah. That, that, that must've been harrowing. I mean, it must've been really, yeah. You can say I have a trigger, I have trigger, uh, anxiety, <laughs> stress <laughs> disorder now, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, so that was a couple of years of, you know, that kind of crazy stuff. I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell you a, a story, not really similar to that, but kind of similar mm-hmm. to that. When I was, uh, I don't know, it was like 13, 14, something like that. Me and a friend of mine were hitching to to my job, 
and this guy picks us up. Seems like in a pickup truck. So we're kitchen down the street. So he pulls over. So we run down the street, and I jump in the car first. I jump in the cab first, and my friend jumps in after me. So we're driving, and you know this is this is a long time ago. So things were different, but thirty years ago. Yeah. And so we look in the sky. He's like a Grizzly Adams looking dude. I mean, he's got. He looks like like a lot of guys you see now, but for then it was weird. It's a big long big beard, beard and yeah. flannel shirt, and, he was like, and between me and the guy is this huge, like two hand chainsaw. And we're like, oh well, whatever, you know. Didn't really think anything of it. So uh, we told him where to drop us off. We don't want to tell him exactly where we're going. So we're like, oh yeah, drop us off in this parking lot over here. Yeah, yeah. So we go and he pulls up to the parking lot, and he says, "Hey boys," I'm like, "Yeah." And he goes, do you believe in Jesus? I said, oh, God, I thought he was going to say you're about to meet him right now. You know, something like that. I was going to grab the chainsaw. And we were like, oh, I was like stunned into, into I couldn't even talk. I was like, uh, uh. And he whips. I had some like church kind of pamphlets. He's like, what oh, the, you think the about little, going to church? The chick tracks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, boy, I really scared the hell out of me. So, you know, that's the thing, though, is that hitchhiking's terrible. I loved riding trains because there's, the the point is to never be seen so nobody knows you're there there's like this odd safety that that you feel being completely like unknown you know like when trains when you're riding a train like you never want somebody to see you nobody knows you're there um and that kind of anonymity is almost comforting you know what i mean um but hitchhiking is terrible i hated it i hated it because the people who pick you up are not normal people and i'd like to say that i know i'm not that normal but i'm way more normal than that you know (laughs) and when people are like how do you know we're not going to kill you and you pick you up and you go i don't i i really don't (laughs) i'm hoping you don't i'm really hoping you don't because i just got to get somewhere (laughs) that's that's gonna be a creepy thing to hear for someone to say yeah people say all kinds of weird stuff um but all in all the majority of people out there are good people and they just want to help you out and they'll give you some money and some food and they're usually poor people um who just you know would understand where you're at you know what i mean um and so it gives you a little bit more faith like obviously there's some scary people out there too but majority of people out there are good and kind do you think a lot of times it's it's poor people do you think people who have less tend to give more Oh yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, rich people seem to not want to, not yeah. want to part with their money. Maybe that's how they got rich in the first place. It, it could be, or they have they they're afraid to lose. I don't know more to lose. I don't know. I don't know what it is. Um, I mean, I've definitely gone from being a, a like a being raised poor to being considered wealthy now with my career. Um, and so I've seen that that change and that shift just in my own habits, my own life, you know, it's an interesting observation of like, you know, I used to not be afraid of anything. And as far as people went, you know, there was always some form of relation, you know, like we can talk it through, we can work through it. Like we can see eye to eye, but then the more successful that I've become, the more isolated I've become from a lot of people, the harder it is for me to feel that connection, if that makes sense. And so there is a sense of fear sometimes of like, I can't communicate with this person. I can't relate to this person or, you know, like, I don't know if I'm expressing myself very well, but it's definitely shifted. And I'm not even sure if that's just because I've gotten older. Um, 
but my my brother one of my brothers is a you would consider him a street person now you know and i know he's not um violent at all but he would look scary you mm. know <laughs> but he has a mental illness so oh. that's very common for that i did it for you know i didn't know what i was doing searching for something it's <laughs> always a search right mm-hmm. oh yeah all right so how so you traveled for about four years you said i rode trains and hitchhiked for about four years but then i traveled um i would say I'd, i like moved and traveled from if i started at 16 up until i was about 31 really yeah i lived all over the place um, I moved different places, <clears throat> either for jobs, like tattoo jobs, chasing um, some form of a better career move. Mm-hmm. Um, and there was a hot minute where I went to college for illustration because I wanted to try that out. I hadn't been in school since I dropped out. Um, so I did that for a little bit. I went to Pacific Northwest College of Art for Illustration in Portland, Oregon. Okay. Um, uh, I, how, how old were you? Like, where in the timeline does that fall? I was 24. Up? Okay, so you're so yeah, so you've been out of school for a while already by then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, twenty four was the age that I didn't have to uh, pay tuition based off of my parents' income, mm. so that was my only option was to wait till I was considered fiscally independent. Even right. if I wasn't getting support from my parents, you couldn't uh, apply for the grants and tuitions that were available to me um, before then. I so I got a full ride um, on my tuition to PNCA through a grant. Um, based on my portfolio um and i didn't take out uh anything other than like a subsidized federal loan Mm because i had to take a full credit course in order to keep my grant so i was working full-time too um at that point i'd already been tattooing for a while um but i wanted to try art school i did it um it was it was great facilities classes um, but then I dropped out and it was probably the best move I ever made. Yeah. Was it just, was it just <laughs> not what you, uh, um, had envisioned or not what you, th- well, I think, thought it was gonna- I think it was hard for me because I had already had so much life experience and I was going in as a freshman with these other individuals who were coming straight out of high school. Right. And so the maturity level was just so vastly different. Um, even for kids who were in there working full time, like I was, um, but I was, I was older already. Um, but I'd also been out of home for so long. Yeah. I mean, you had a lot of, yeah. you probably had a lot of life experience. Yeah. I mean, even, even kids of the same age as you probably wouldn't have that same. No. So it was, I've, I always felt, I mean, I guess that ever since I was a child, I've always felt somewhat out like some somewhat different you know what Mm -hmm. i mean i don't know why that is um it was never a bad thing it was just like something different and so that but that feeling can kind of steer the course of your decision making a lot in life you know so um you know i gave it a go and it was actually uh i went i i was really very interested in women in art um and at the time, you know, statistically, female artists had a much rougher time than their male counterparts sure. in the art world, um, more so than other areas. Um, in the world as a whole, yes. But um, So there was this woman who was doing a seminar, and her name is Lori Anderson, and she is Lou Reed's wife. 
Okay. Um, and she is a visual artist as well as a musical artist. She's also the only artist in resident to ever be hired by NASA before their budget funding was cut. Really? Yeah. Um, she helped design the greenification of Mars that'll happen in 2,000 yeah, years. Yeah. She designed these giant um, platforms that would be built in our stratosphere so that rockets and those kinds of things would actually not have to burn f- excessive fuel to break our gravitational pull. Yeah, so they could take off from in yeah. space and see. Yeah. Um, she's also really well-renowned uh, for building these beautiful gardens in Japan. So she came to do this, um, this seminar, and um, there was only so many slots to go, so we had to write an essay on why, to, why we should go, right? So I wrote this long essay about how women in art and how great she was and how I admired her, and I really wanted to see her speak. Um, so a couple days later, I got this email back from our school that was like, congratulations, you got in. We didn't get enough applicants, so everybody who applied could go. And it, I was just <laughs> like, really? Nobody wants to go see this woman speak? So I go, and there's maybe like 10 people or 15 people there. And um, she does her presentation and stuff, and then she turns it off, and she kind of just looks at us all very plainly, and she goes, you know, your teachers are probably going to hate me for saying this, but you don't have to go to art school to be an artist. You know, she's like, this is for your use of facility. But to be an artist is to be someone in the world, to live what you do, right? And so she told this little personal story about how um, she was a teenager in the 60s, 70s or whatever, and I don't know if she, like, had a fight with her roommate, and so she said something that was like... um, oh, you know, I'm going to go to Europe and have a European art show. <laughs> and so then her roommate was like, um, yeah, whatever. And so she she was like, how am I going to do this? And she basically called around to all these little art galleries in Europe and pretended to be her own manager and was like, oh, we have this great new artist, Laurie Anderson, and we'd love to book a show. And she got gigs, and she wow. did. She booked shows, and she went, and she had this visual showing, and one day her projector didn't work or that she or something that she had to play music so she played violin and she played a little violin to it and that was her life you know and she wow. became who she is today um and a lot of that I'm kind of like paraphrasing because this was so long ago but that yeah. was the moment that I dropped out of high school or dropped out of college I was like yeah I'm out of here <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna go do that <laughs> I, 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 I mean there's only so much art you can learn in the school, right? I mean, you could think it maybe, yeah. you, you know, give you techniques for well, this or that, but I mean, some of it has to be innate, right? I mean, yeah, so that's what kind of born an artist, right? Well, and I think it's that's the difference between art and skill, right? So, like, you can learn skill, you can learn technique, right. you can be taught how to do something, um, you can be taught a technique to make something work a certain way um but to expand upon that to change it to be uniquely yours to tweak it whatever it is whether it's science art or whatever like that's where i think artistry or creativity kind of comes into um and i think maybe my life i've always been drawn towards experiences and knowledge through experiences which is why i really took i think to tattooing so well because it's not something you can read in a book or find right. online, or be taught in a class, like, a lot of it is hands-on, like, absorbing your environment, and putting it into practical use, sure. um, and it just so happened that, you know, by being drawn to that, and dropping out of college, I also 
prevented myself from accruing a giant amount of student debt. So um, at 37, I can say I'm 100% student debt free, which is uh, probably one of the smartest things I've ever done. Yeah, no, that's great. So, yeah, you know, I know that's a, that's a big anchor a lot of people are dragging. Yeah, um, and it allowed it's allowed me to be very free with my life. So no student debt and no children, you know. Let's backtrack a little. Sure. So, so at 16, you start traveling. And at 24, you start art school already having tattooed. Mm-hmm. So somewhere in between, were, were, were you always were you always like attracted to art or to, or to tattoo specifically or something like that? You know, I my parents always encouraged me to be an artist. Um, I was always given art supplies and to paint and stuff, and I, and so I rebelled against that for a long time. I was like, no, I don't want to be an artist. Fuck that. You know, I want to be like an archaeologist or an anthropologist. (laughs) Um, I love history. I love story. I love folklore. I love the story of human beings. Um, And so I was that was always like my dream job is to work at the Smithsonian, (laughs) even as a janitor. (laughs) Um. Which it still is. Um, <laughs> put that in my back pocket. Um, but Anyone from the Smithsonian listening. Yeah, yeah. hopefully. <laughs> um, you know, uh, but, you know, that alternative lifestyle that I kind of was drawn to and chose, um, you know, put me in touch with some very interesting characters. And so when I was 16, I was out late at night with some friends and there's this park on in Ann Arbor is a university city. It's a Big Ten school. So um, it's even though it's a small town. And so there's this place called the Diag where all the like townies would hang out. And I was out late with some girlfriends and we were probably drinking vodka in a Sobe bottle or something stupid <laughs> like that. Um, and we were walking through the Diag and one of my friends ran into this guy that she knew and apparently, like, he was older, um, and his name was C-Note, and he had a, a homemade tat gun. And so he was like, hey, ladies, you want some tattoos? And my friend, being more ballsy than me, was like, hell yeah. And I was like, oh, man, I don't know if I'm that cool, <laughs> you know? Um, but they start, like, setting it up right there in the diag, like, in the park, like, on a park bench, you know? And so I was like, I'm going to watch her and then i was watching him tattoo her obviously this is the most horrific like unsanitary thing ever but at the time it was like so cool and uh i was like i want one (laughs) (laughs) and he was like he finished up and was like cool what do you want to get and i i actually got a tattoo on my hand wow because i wanted to watch what he was doing and I was like, if I'm going to go, I'm going to go bold. <laughs> so I got this horrible, horrible, weird tribal thing that I drew on my hand. Oh, you drew it? I drew it on with a ballpoint pen. Um, and since then, it's been covered up three times and then blacked out. So that's gone. Um, but it's still under there. And yeah, I think from that moment on, I was kind of hooked to tattoos as far as like, always kind of in the back of my mind like i had a tattoo at that point i was a tattooed person at 16 on my hand um and my parents didn't care at that period in time too that was certainly a more 
unusual thing than it is now. Oh yeah, this and was on your, in like on your hand too. That was a, a not common spot. Yeah, this was like what ninety six? No, ninety ninety eight, ninety seven. What? I was a I would have graduated in two thousand. So yeah. So yeah, so I mean, tattooing was still not a big thing like it is oh, now. Oh no, yeah. And I mean, hand hand tattoos was something. Even tattooers didn't get, I mean, a lot no. of back then. It was, I mean, was, I didn't know anything, yeah, no. nothing. Um, so yeah, I had no clue. Um, but yeah, that was a, that was a very bold move, Gia. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd say so. So, but my, you know, my mom's so darling. Um, the way that the, the old, the, the old tattoo looked, there was like this swirl and this other swirl. And so when she saw it, she was like, oh, Gia, that's so beautiful. It looks like your name, a G and an R for Gia Rose. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> My mom. <laughs> and so, Sorry. No, no. That's how funny. she is. It's funny. <laughs> and so how did you get, how did you get from there? To doing tattoos um I still was not very interested into pursuing art um I was really into kind of the life of being like somewhat of an activist and alternative punk kid and I was really into zines and like you know riding trains and you know kind of pursuing that kind of life and that community is very um counterculture and so they have their own communities you know that are outside of all the other communities and they're very political and you know very intellectual um and so when I started tattooing I was actually just kind of in the right place at the right time I was staying at a punk compound in Asheville North Carolina and winter had settled in and my traveling partner Lena and um our friend Danica who I traveled with for you know a couple years on and Mm -hmm. off wanted to go north to New York City and it was cold and I didn't want to travel anymore I was tired and at the time I would think I was 20 and I was just kind of done at that point with like that kind of traveling and it was real winter like snow on the ground and Um, I liked Asheville and I really liked, um, the people there. So I was like, I'm going to stay. And it was the first time I broke from them and I stayed and I was like, I stayed for a year and I got a job, um, working at a kitchen. And, um, one day this girl was in the house I was living at and I think she had this huge crush on my roommate and she just, just kept kind of talking to me and just trying to be friends, I guess. And somehow it came up about how she knew this artist who was a tattoo artist and she was looking for an apprentice and this was a woman. Um, and I was drawing and she just was like, Hey, are you interested in tattooing? Like, that's how it went. And I was like, I don't know. (laughs) And so she was like, well, this is who she is. Uh, her name is Miss Kitty and she owns this tattoo parlor in town. So you should tell her that I sent you. And I don't even remember her name anymore. Um, and I guess I went because, I mean, obviously I went. I don't know exactly how it happened. And I had no idea what I was getting myself into. I, I didn't understand what an apprenticeship was. And I didn't understand what tattooing was. And I, I just didn't, right? Um, but I was I was like, oh, this is a trade skill. That's kind of cool. Like, And that's just kind of how it happened. I met her and she was really interested in who I was as a person more than my artistic ability. Thank God. Um, (laughs) 
And so I, she took me on as an apprentice and that was that. I was her apprentice and I made needles and I scrubbed tubes and I built machines and mixed pigment, all the stuff that you, oh, a traditional apprentice right. did. And that's because she was taught in the 80s to do that. And um, she still works at Liquid Dragon, I think. Liquid Dragons, you know, very 90s. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so that's yeah. how it happened. It's unusual, right? That's almost the opposite of, of oh, yeah. how apprenticeships go, where people have to go to a uh, hundred different shops and beg to get in until mm-hmm. someone's like, all right, you know, mm-hmm. I'll clean the toilets for a year and then I'll think about apprenticing you. Yeah. She just kind of went without even any intention. You know, kind of almost just went right into it. Yeah. She was definitely way more interested in who I was in a person as a person and like what I believed in. Um, and she was a really unique person uh, for her time. Um, and definitely, definitely for her time. She's a good tattooer. She was very artistic and she tattooed mostly women and women who were very like, so all of her work was custom um, and they were very spiritually minded. And so she would focus on that kind of aspect of tattooing of like helping people heal and helping people like go through those kinds of moments of life. It was not street shop at all. It was the complete opposite. The kind of studio she had, you just didn't have anywhere. You do now all the time. But at that time they just went, didn't exist. So when I finished my apprenticeship and I went to tattoo in New Orleans, I was in for a rude awakening to (laughs) uh, the reality. And I actually almost quit tattooing after that because I I went and worked at a a small shop uh, I don't think is there anymore since Katrina called Crescent City Tattoo. The $20 name days, ring the bell, first time tattooer. Even though I'd done an apprenticeship, I was the, you know, chop bitch, doing laundry. So you you did your apprenticeship and then you went right. I just yeah. went right into being. I did my apprenticeship um, for a year and then it was kind of anticipated that I would stay on and work. But she had kind of at that time, I think she had another business that she was focusing on mm-hmm. um, as well. And she didn't have the shop environment to help me get that experience. And, you know, I was still used to traveling and moving around and. Um, a couple of friends of mine that I knew at that time were going to move to Austin, Texas. And through there and through them, they had friends who were tattooers who had a shop who would be willing to give me a job. You know, this time there was no internet, no like portfolio, you know, you had to show up with your physical portfolio and, you know, a good work ethic. And that was what got you in the door essentially. Um, And then you had to work your way through. So that was the plan. Um, but our truck broke down in New Orleans and <laughs> we never left. So, uh, I, I mean, I spent a year there and, and I tried to get out as much as po- I hate. That was where I, I knew that was the moment I left that scene of that community of traveling mm-hmm. kids. Like all my, like my friends at the time kind of got into some stuff that I wasn't into and. Um, New Orleans is a dangerous city for people who don't have a, a really good constitution with boundaries. And, you know, pre-Katrina is pretty scary. So it's a very dangerous yeah, place. Yeah, I've, I've heard it's, it's rough. In, it's pretty rough. In New Orleans. There's no, there's just no boundaries, you know, like, um, especially if you're poor and, you know, everyone works at bars and the, I mean, everything's very fluid there. You know what I mean? Like, if you couldn't work a shift, you could get someone else to work your shift, even if they didn't work at your bar. 
as long as you had a serving really? card. Yeah. Um, there was a couple of kids I knew who worked at a, a, a bar called The Alibi. It was owned by an ex-cop. Lots of shady things. <laughs> uh, you know, it was just a, yeah. when we first got there, we were staying in the Ninth Ward. Um, and then after that, we lived in the Treme right behind and then right behind right behind Louis Armstrong Park and I would I would literally outrun a wild pack of dogs on my bike every night get out of here yeah no no joke um so I get out of work from one of the the bars I worked at and right behind Louis Armstrong Park was where we lived <clears throat> and like you would come around this corner and there was always this like pack of dogs that were laying in the dirt in the park and as soon as they'd see you, they'd start barking and run after you. So you'd have to get stand up on your bike and prepare to just like book it because they'd only oh, chase God. you for like a block and then go back <laughs> every single night. I'm not even joking. Maybe it's just protecting their park, maybe. Yeah. Wow. But that was, you know. That's pretty wild. <laughs> Literally. Rough way to go to work. Yeah, and there, like, every house you move into, like, like people take everything with them when they leave. So when you move into a house, it is bare bones. There's no refrigerator. There's no stove. There's no, there's nothing. So you get, like, you have nothing, you know, and then especially in this, the, the poor neighborhoods. And so we had nothing, you know. And, um, yeah, it was just a, it was a scary time. So I, I, I literally left. A month's rent and a note when I left. I got a one-way Amtrak ticket out, and I went west. And I left, and I never went back. So I was like, the city's going to kill me. I'm going to die. That's no way to live. Yeah. I mean, you can drink until forever. The bars don't close. Oh, really? Yeah, they don't close. You could be out. So you basically, like, it was, you go to work, one or two in the afternoon. Um, if you had a second job, maybe you would go to work again around 10. And then you'd get out, maybe two, go to the bar where everyone was, drink till seven in the morning, eight in the morning, go to sleep, get up, go to work. That's then that was life, you know. That's pretty wild. That's most states everything's closed by what, like two o'clock or something. Yeah. Nope. So where'd you take the Amtrak to? Where'd you go? I went to Oxnard, California. Oh. <laughs> Random place. Yeah. Um, I had a friend that I had met a couple uh, years previously through some like activism stuff in San Francisco and him and a bunch of people lived there and on some property and he told me um, I was welcome to go and just kind of chill out and I didn't have to pay any rent because, you know, we had kept in contact through email and stuff and I'd communicated some of my stresses with New Orleans and I think in New Orleans it was when I had my first panic attack. Um where I didn't understand what was happening to me, but I felt like I was dying. You know, I was just walking down the street and I thought I was going to die. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, you know, it got progressively worse. Now I know what was happening. I was probably having just major panic attacks because I was probably always in some form of dangerous situation. Um, so I just knew I needed to get out and I didn't want to go back to Michigan because at that point I hadn't really been communicating with my parents and I felt kind of ashamed about where I'd been living and what I've been doing and I never got into drugs but you know I was drinking a lot and was not in the healthiest of environments um and I didn't want to not be able to take care of myself so it seemed like a good opportunity to just go chill out for a while so I did I went out there and um him and the people out there were very kind and I had a room and 
I got a job and I, you know, I put tattooing down for a while and kind of took care of myself. I went to the library every day, got books on panic attacks and anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) I read those self-help books. That's smart, I guess. And then after that, I ended up going to school. So from there, that's when you went to to, uh, Pacific Northwest? Yep. Yeah, I've had, I, I, I have a lot in my life. It's I mean, like so sh- much crammed in there. I was just thinking, I was thinking, I feel like we've covered so much already. Like there's there's so much has happened already and, <laughs> and you're still pretty young at this point. You know, I, mean, I just, I guess like that was when I broke off. You know, the thing is, is that looking back now, let's say I've been tattooing for 16 years now and it wasn't until after art school that I was like, I've... I, I recognized that at that point I'd been tattooing longer than I'd done anything else. Mm-hmm. Like tattooing was the always constant, right? So throughout all of the many different lives that I might have lived or paths I could have started or started on. Uh, and I feel like throughout my life, I've never like turned around from a path. I more veer off of a path. You know what I mean? Because um, I've start on lots of paths, but then I veer off of them because they're not right for me. Um, but I don't ever start over again. I don't ever feel like I start over again. I always feel like I'm continuing on. Um, but tattooing has always been the main c- constant. It was always something I could rely on. It was always something I could fall back on. It was always there for me to make money in a pinch, right. even if I wasn't in a shop at the time. Um, because I, you know, even before I did an apprenticeship, you know, I didn't know the rules. And then after an apprenticeship, sometimes the girls got to make some fucking money, you know, (laughs) and I'm not selling drugs and I'm not selling my body. So I'm going to tattoo out of my goddamn kitchen, (laughs) you know, um, I would never do that now, obviously, but you know, at a certain point I was like, I should probably try to get good at this. Like, I, you know, I I recognized that I my apprenticeship was was easy gotten. It was right. not easy to do. My apprenticeship, I definitely made so many fucking needles. And, you know, and she was not easy on me in any way. Right. Um, but actually getting good at tattooing and, you know, working for that. So I think after art school, I spent the next couple of years really trying to get good at tattooing um, and really pushing myself to work at shops and to continue to like move up through shops and work at better shops and better shops and better shops, you know? Let me ask you this because you had said despite your parents encouraging you to be artistic, you kind of had rebelled against it. Mm -hmm. How was your artistic ability when you started tattooing? Um, Obviously everyone develops over time and you wouldn't be where you are now, but right. I, I feel like I have a natural knack for, things like composition and design. Um, like I, I've, the feedback I've gotten throughout the years has always been that I have that from teachers, from coworkers, from mentors. I've always had this unnatural ability for, for composition and design and, you know, my tastes or my palettes. Right. Um, but the actual technical ability to draw was very honed over digging pretty deep. My friend Bobby Johnson or Glendale Bully says he has to dig real deep to be any good at what he does. And I can relate to that. I'm not naturally gifted in the sense that like some of us are the Kelly Doties and the Frank Lenatras of the world right. where um, like illustration might be like part of their very natural repertoire. Or at least visually, that's what we see. Right. right. Um, and then they're perfecting off of that. So I'm definitely not one of the born right off the bat kind right. of person. Yeah. Um, so I have had to work pretty hard for it and I still do, I still push myself to study hard and 
you know, I'm still constantly trying to be better <laughs> at what I do. So, so while you were, while you were improving, working to improve your tattooing, you were, you were working on your, mm-hmm. your artisticness. Your, yeah. Your you have skills. They say you have one apprenticeship, but then you have many mentors and that's how it goes, you know? And that's something I love about tattooing is again, it's that experience. It's that immersing yourself into it. Nobody sits you down and goes, this is how you do this. You kind of pick it up by watching and learning and, you might get like, oh, here, this is how you turn a machine on. But, right. you know, everything throughout that, everything past that is is fine-tuning to you, you know, and and then to your client as well. And it's this very, like, um, flow, you know? Like, you know, you kind of have to weave and move in this consistent back and forth of, like, you know, living and working within your own experience. It's very real-time, very mindful, so then you finished art school, you start honing your, your tattooing, your art. Trying really hard. Mm-hmm. And where was your, where was your next big, Port- big stop in life? Well, so after school, I stayed in Portland, Oregon. And I, I like I had said, I kind of put tattooing down a little bit um, seriously after New Orleans because uh, when I got out to Southern California, I was kind of like licking my wounds, so to speak, emotionally and mentally from my experience in New Orleans. And that area in California, I was really afraid to look for a job because a lot of the shops out there are biker owned yeah. uh, by Hells Angels. And I know like I think George Christie lives in that area and some of the shops are his. And one of the main things my apprenticeship the woman who taught me said was never work for bikers. <laughs> um, years later, I would meet a friend who worked for the Gypsy Jokers for a while and had his hands broken and still on good terms with him. That was just one of the things that had to happen. And, um, you know, that whole world I didn't want to get into. And so I didn't try to find a job out there in Southern California. And I waited, um, you know, I did that tattooing out of my house to pay the bills sometimes, but not proud to say, but it's okay. Um, and then, so I was in Portland, I did school for a bit, said, fuck that. Went back to tattooing, was like, I'm going to try to get good at tattooing. And then I got a job at a good shop. Um, I met my friend Ulysses Blair, yep. who's a really good tattooer sure. now. Uh, he was just as shitty as me. We became <laughs> good friends. He lived on my couch for years. Um, we started telling people we were brother and sister. <laughs> He's pretty much my brother. Um, and we both kind of had the same like mentality of like, let's try to get good at what we're doing, you know? Cause a lot of tattooers at that time weren't part of that. Wasn't really their reality. It was just kind of cool to do that job, you know? Right. Um, and like social media was kind of just starting. And so Ulysses and I were the two, like we're kind of the two tattooers, at least in my world. And, and at that time that we were like, look at what Derek Noble's doing. Look at this guy, Jeff Gogway, who's coming out of Oregon. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like starting to actually look around in the world of tattooing past magazines, but looking through social media and the internet and being like, whoa, look at what these people are doing, you sure. know? And so tattooing was just like going through the roof as far as the possibilities. Yeah. I mean, when tattooing started getting online and social media, I mean, that what a real game changer in yeah in a lot of ways I man mean. like i went to the first ever uh oregon tattoo convention because mm-hmm. oregon has i worked it and oregon has like um one of the strictest tattooing laws some of the strictest tattooing laws out of the whole country second i think to we're on par with hawaii mm-hmm. if not the um 
And so there was some real kind of like finagling I had to do to get licensed. Um, but luckily I'm smart and. Oh, you have to have a license to oh, yeah. Going on yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, um, you have to take a couple tests. So, but luckily I'm smart. And um, one of the first shops that I worked at in Oregon is a big piercing studio. So they're APP certified. And so, as you know, as piercers are incredibly, especially if they're APP certified, anal, as far as cleanliness goes. Um, and that's so a, I. That's Association of Professional Piercers, if anyone doesn't Oh, know yeah, Association of Professional Piercers. Um, and so their standards are usually very high. Um, I hate to say it, but higher than tattoo shops. For the most part, um, which is a good thing. So I learned I was required at the studio to take a lot of classes on contamination, cross-contamination, yeah, preventions, bloodborne pathogens, BBP, um, which fascinated me because I love that stuff. And so I got my license and I was working in Oregon and I worked the first ever Oregon convention and I saw Jeff Gogway. Nobody knew who he was. Here's this fucking talented, incredible, mind-blowing painter doing his tattoos like his paintings. Whoa. Yeah. You know, and coming up in tattooing, you couldn't, you were told you can't do that. Right. You can't tattoo like that. You know, like the, those break all the rules. You can't do that. And here's this guy doing it. So it was like, whoa, like this whole world has so much more potential than I even knew, you know? Yeah. So, um, that was a very big moment for me as far as my career. Um, I saw the ability to kind of break from the traditional aspects of tattooing. So, all right. So before that, you were doing, like you said, like traditional more. Yeah. Just street shop, traditional yeah. tattooing, like bold will hold, flat, you know, like yeah. packing color, yeah, well, single pull lines. Yeah, it's all about your line work. Lines, yeah. yeah. All about like, you know, Big, you know, it was big lines and yeah. solid colors and, you know, blending colors was kind of not really a thing. You know what I mean? It was more like yeah. breaking your art into to look like you're blending colors. But you know what I mean? Yep. Like, but yep. that was it. Seeing what Jeff Gogwe was doing was like, holy shit, this guy is literally painting on the skin. I, I remember, How the hell is he doing that? <laughs> I remember when I first when I got my first tattoo when I was 18. Mm-hmm. And I started looking in, in magazines because I, I figured ah, I'm just going to get one and blah, blah. And, you know, it's just like everyone else in the world one wasn't enough. But um, I started looking in magazines and I started seeing people at that time, which was uh, like in the early 90s. And uh, the guys I always think of as like Guy Aitchinson and mm -hmm. Aaron Kane. And I had that same reaction. Like, geez, I never knew tattooing could be like that. Like, I didn't know that that people could do that kind of stuff. And, 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 uh, yeah, I think Marcus Pacheco and I mean, you guys, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. these guys like that, that were really trailblazing. Yeah. Trailblazing. And, and the same thing, like you're talking about with Jeff Goldberg, that it, you just see it and you're like, it just opens the doors like in, in a way that you right. never thought was possible. Yeah. And, and artists like Shige yellow blaze too, to mm -hmm. see him the way he takes traditional Japanese imagery and like, just like pushes it even further, you know? And, and so those, those were, that was really kind of like, okay, this is what I want to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, um, not that I didn't want it before, but it was like, this is more about the art and more about the skill and more about the, the potential of what it is than, than just a job, like making money and giving the client what they want. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. 
And that's what I want. So I would say that's exactly the difference between the older previous kind of style like you're talking about like you, you were like you were doing and the stuff like we're talking about now it's it's it lets you be an artist as a tattooer yeah. as opposed to someone that's just right kind of rubber stamping one mm-hmm. tattoo after and, the other I'm and there's not person. one that's better than the other it's just a men- mental shift you know yeah. like you know someone told me once you have to learn to build a table before you can build a house and it's kind of the same thing where it's like tattooing is more about building a table like the actual skill of tattooing is about learning to build that table but once you know how to build that table then you can build whatever you you know you can build off of that into whatever you want right and so you can take that skill level and then being an art being be an artist but that takes a lot of work you know it takes a lot of experience and work and you know and and learning how to break those boundaries as well. So, you know, I decided at that moment, like, I want to go east. I want to go back to the east coast because I felt like as much as I loved the Pacific Northwest and the climate up there is perfect for me, um, the it was very, like, isolated and a bit white bread. And I wanted to be, <laughs> you know, closer to more hustle and bustle and more I you know like closer to Europe and I was seeing all of these other artists like that were doing the stuff I wanted to do coming out of Europe not out of the United States like America was still very traditional um and I wanted more than that and so I kind of made a calculated move because also being in Portland um because of their stringent licensing policy um there are hundreds of tattoo shops so um, their their very stringent licensing policy actually forces people to learn to tattoo through schools rather than apprentices apprenticeships. Really? They have tattoo schools. Yeah, and only a few shops are sanctioned as such, and so wow. you can go to school and get licensed within six months, and then nobody will hire you because you're shit at that point. Right. So these people are licensed and they pay to school, and no one will hire them, so they open their own shop. And so I was like, I want nothing to do with this. Never going to own a shop. That was my thing. Never going (laughs) to own a shop. I want nothing to do with this. I just want to be a a better tattooer. So I went east and I went to port to, sorry, Philadelphia. um, Because Philadelphia had the little, the least amount of tattoo shops uh, in the whole country for a city that size. Really? Yes, it does. At the time, I think it only had 40. Within Philadelphia city limits. Two million people, 40 tattoo shops. Portland at the time had over 250 tattoo shops. And a much smaller city. Yeah. Wow. So I was like, um, so nobody's you, so doing... You consciously looked for somewhere. I did. yeah. Wow. I was like, I want to be somewhere that's close to New York. I want to be somewhere that's affordable. I want to be somewhere that's close to like all of the Eastern Seaboard, the clientele and everything, and close to Europe. Did you want to be close to New York because of... of- tattoo artistry that was going on there or just because you like New York or both I mean I just I wanted access you know I wanted to be I wanted more opportunity Mm -hmm. you know and I knew at the time that being a female tattooer our tattooer already had kind of its perks in the sense that there weren't very many of us um so you had something to give a shop that a male tattooer didn't a lot of women get tattooed and they prefer sometimes to have a female artist. Um, so it can be a benefit. The downside is that most shops will only at the time would only hire one. 
they, you know, if you went in for a job, they'd be like, we already have a chick who works here. Because, you know, you can't have more than one <laughs> at, that, <laughs> at that time. But at that time, there probably wasn't. Like, I could, I could easily see how at that time, I mean, tattooing was, was, was still largely thought of as, uh, you know, bikers and sailors and, and, yeah. and you know, punk rock guys and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, and, or and like, gang stuff. Yeah. That I could see how a, a woman would want to go into a shop and, and see another woman there and how that would certainly make her feel yeah more comfortable yeah i mean tattoo shops were intimidating places you know what i mean like it was hard to walk into them and so if a shop owner was smart having a woman there even just behind the counter made it a little bit more approachable in some ways um but i've been told by shops like we don't want women in our shop (laughs) and it's like wow really cool okay see you later um but you know and i think because I was raised so differently, I never noticed the difference in tattoo shops. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I never knew that the rougher environments or the, like, more, you know, kind of, like, sexual harassment that would happen was abnormal. You know what I mean? Right. Like, I just always kind of thought that that was what you had to put up with as a woman. You know? And then later on, as I got older, realizing that, like, oh, that's not normal. That's not okay. Being like, oh, wow, Yeah. Dude, you guys suck. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that's um, maybe societal shift also. I mean, as, oh, as opposed to just in tattoo shops. Oh, I yeah. mean, it's big. Like, a lot of people don't realize this, but, you know, just simple things. Like, women were not legally allowed to apply for a business loan until 1986 without a male co-signer. 86? Yeah. Every, is that nationally or is that yeah. state? Wow. Uh, women weren't allowed to own a credit card until 71. Get out of here. No, I'm serious. Like, a lot of people don't realize that these things are so new. Like, female empowerment and equality is new. It, it's, I mean, the women have been fighting for it for a very long time, right? Right. But um, it's relatively, it's a new thing, you know? Like, we've been second-class citizens for centuries, mm-hmm. you know? And a lot of people don't understand that women never had very many options. If you were born poor and you didn't marry well... You know, like you were pretty much like you were you you were shit out of luck. You had like two jobs possibly. You could you know nanny or work for a family and be you know a nanny essentially, or you could teach. Um, and even teaching wasn't necessarily you know it was only like preschool essentially. You know, being a governess or whatever. Yeah. Um, and so your only prospects were being married well and. When you were married, you were literally an extension of your husband um, and legally, you know, oh, sure, very much legally. And all of that stuff was a very recent, you know, so women, you couldn't open businesses, you know, you couldn't earn your own money. Um, what's fascinating is actually women who are tattooed women in the circuses at the time could earn a very good living. Because they were part of that yeah. whole community. And that was a good way for a poor woman to make her own money at the time and to make good money um, without, you know, prostitution. Um, yeah. So it's like a lot of those things are, are relevant if you're, if you're a woman. You know, like it's the way society looks at you and sees you. Um, and it's one thing that I will give tattooing over any other industry is that though, like nowadays... Um, 
even if it's hard to get into once you're into it, if you do good work, you make the same amount as your male counterparts, dollar for dollar. And there's no glass ceiling. Yeah, well, yeah, because I think in tattooing, your work speaks for itself. I and mean, your work mm-hmm. does the talking as opposed to yeah. whether you're a man or one. Uh, you know, I just, after you had agreed to do this interview and after I, when I first started thinking about it, and before I kind of knew how I was going to start the show, I was thinking, what was I going to say? And I was gonna, I was thinking, oh, I'll say something like, uh, you know, my guest today is is the, the beautiful and talented Gia Rose, something like that. And it occurred to me, it's kind of that that's like an older style greeting. That's a greeting, mm-hmm. uh, like an intro from a time, uh, you know, a time of the past. And, you know, true, but, but, but what, what you look like has nothing to do right. with, with, right. with why, with why I'm here interviewing. It's because, right. it's because of your work. And, I, you know, I would be interviewing the same as if I, if I was going to say, hey, it's, you know, the three headed, four toed Gio like it doesn't matter. No, I, I hear you. And, and I feel like putting that, I mean, we're so used to in society to, to, to just to saying things to, like that. To comment it, but it, but on it, a woman's looks. Yeah, because it, right. it kind of, yeah. it, it, but it, like, it really mm-hmm. trivializes everything else because it, right. it, it makes it just an, like, like, like an older idea that something of a woman's importance is based on her looks. The value. It's, it's really not. Right, her value. All. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, it's like, you know, I, I've i gone back and forth in my life between whether I'm comfortable calling myself a feminist or not um, because of the negative, like, connotations to the word. You know, like, feminism, a lot of people hear that word and they think that you don't like men or you right. have something against men. Um, and so I shied away from that term for a while because I'm a very healthy heterosexual female, you know, and mm-hmm. I'm married and I love my husband and, you know, like our relationship and marriage could be considered traditional in a lot of senses, you know, because I do believe that men and women are different, you know what I mean? Yes. Um, but I heard somebody describe it once, which was, you know, do you believe that as a male you are worth more than me because I'm female? And if your answer is no, then you're a feminist. That's all it is. It's that our value is the same. It's not about our identities, our experiences in the world. We're not the same people, right? We don't we're not the we're not the same at all and we can have very different experiences, right? My experience as a woman even if we're equal is going to be different than yours. Sure. But our values should be the same. And that's what feminism is. Is I, that saying that my value is worth the same as yours? Yes. Regardless of my gender. Well, I would I would agree with that a hundred percent. Your you know, your worth as a person is the same as your yes. as whether you're male or female. Yeah, you, you have a human worth. Even though even though we're different. Even though we're different. Even though our experiences are different. Right. Whether our experiences in the world or our, you know, our, yeah, it's it's purely experiences. You know, our education might be different. Our, you know, the way we experience the world, our belief systems, our political ideologies, our tastes in music, you know, um, the way that we both see the world and ourselves in it. But our values should be weighed the same within our minds that right. no one's worth more than the other person, regardless of their gender um, or their race, um, or their abilities. Um, and that's what equality really is. It's about value. And I think that people forget that and they don't understand that they, they see all the other stuff that's stuck onto it. Like, oh, well, if you are a feminist, that means you, that mean, must mean that you think that men are worth less 
Uh, no. Right. <laughs> because we value, you know, like Black Lives Matter, we think that white people are worth less. You know, it's like, no, you can celebrate something and, and because you need to bring it to the, the same of equal value because it's been marginalized for centuries. Right. So these people and these you know, women and people of different color and different abilities have been marginalized. So what we're doing is we're bringing them to the table and saying we're all worth the same amount. Yes. That's not devaluing white, able-bodied men at all. Right. It's just saying we're all the same. That's it. Yeah. You know, I, I agree. And I, I'm, I'm, it makes me think of Martin Luther King, who when he was fighting for civil rights, he wasn't saying... Uh, I want black people to have more rights than white people or oh. I want black people to... He said, I just want us all to be the same. We're right. all we're all the same. It yeah. doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter yeah. what you're into. It doesn't matter. Whatever. And I right. think that's... It's like people... It's, I don't know what it is. It's like... It, I, I mean, maybe it's... I don't know. Like, whoever said that, like... That, like... That anything has a limit, you know what I mean? Like that, there's only so much respect in the world, and so if we start giving some to you, we're gonna lose some over here. Like, where does that idea come from? That there's only so much respect or integrity, or you know, those kinds of things that we have as like morals and ethics as a human race. Like, why? Where did we start thinking that there was like only so much in the world, and right. so we have to like guard it and hide it? Like, no, it's it, it's it's limitless, right? You know, so pass it around and give it to everybody. Like, you do not have to have a monopoly on you know on having a good experience in this life. Yes. You know, like it doesn't. Because everybody's experience and an idea of what good is is different. You know what Absolutely. I mean? Like what some dude in upper Manhattan has as a good life may not be what I want. Right. I don't want that life, but I do want the same rights and I do want the same ability to choose and chase my dreams. Right. You know? Yes. That's well so. put. Yeah. That's just my experience. But I think for the most part, a lot of people feel that way, you know, like as scary as my experiences can be and have been throughout my life. Again, like what it's shown me is the majority of people in this world are good people and they just want to take care of their families and themselves. Mm -hmm. And that's what they want, you know? And it's when people get like afraid that they can act out ra irrationally or yeah. negatively. Fear, so. fear is always the big, uh, Mm -hmm. the big thing that makes people do crazy things mm -hmm. which is silly because like you're just gonna die like everybody else so who cares <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> you know <laughs> we all have about within a hundred years that's it yeah but nope. you wanna... nobody really lives past that no but i mean you want to affect your path towards death as much as possible i think sure to do it being a good person man right. i'm with you you'll have a, a lighter soul at the end if you believe in that thing Sometimes. <laughs> I was planning to ask you about women and tattooing, but I was kind of, I was hoping to get a little further into your life first. But um, so maybe we'll come back to that. But uh, yeah, I mean, go ahead. So uh, I feel like I feel like I don't want to go back because now we're 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 talking about such lofty existential things. I was like, I well, it's like, all part of the experience, and like. You know, I mean, it's like it's all tied in with my life for sure, you know, because right after getting to Philadelphia, um, 
I got cancer. I was diagnosed with cancer. Oh. So, um, and I was diagnosed with an aggressive second stage cervical cancer, um, which is, which, um, my treatment disallowed me to ever physically have children. Um, and that's very much an identity of being a woman and your value within the communities of women. You know what I mean? Like, um, so that has been an incredibly interesting experience just that has nothing to do with the male community at all. You know, it's like, you know, being an older woman now and not having children and not being able to participate in that part of life. I don't think you're quite an older woman. No, but I, I, I always refer to myself as older and I think it's just because I've lived so much of my life. You know what yeah, I mean? I feel ancient. When I say older woman, um, I think of my mother. I'm sorry, mom. Yeah. Like <laughs> no, I don't know why. Um, but, well, you know, I mean, I guess it's like I'm still from that age of where women had children in their 20s. Right. You know, so that was like what women did. And right. if you didn't, you know, 30 was like too late. Whoa. You yeah, know, yeah. You're getting up there, man. You know, and I mean, even society today, like they call a woman who gets pregnant past the age of 30 a geriatric pregnancy. That's the actual medical term. Really? Yeah. At 30? Yeah. Wow. I would never even think of that as close to geriatric. Yeah. That's great. Because they say it's, you can have a healthy pregnancy to thir- like 35, right? About. Now they're saying 40 oh. almost, but that's new. That's all new, mm. you know, as science advances and we understand more and more, you know, again, for for thousands of years, nobody really bothered looking into women's health, you know? Right. Yeah. Women's health was just not really a thing, you know? Um and so there's a lot about the f- like female anatomy even that is coming to light as new like menopause you know like studies on what happens um, now they're doing them finally and they're like oh yeah actually the chemistry in your brain does change you know like you actually do have a change of brain chemistry you kind of become a different person when you go through menopause your hormones just change so rapidly um, and you know like. And, and same with childbirth and, and child rearing. And they, they're saying now that if you, you know, hold off pregnancy till 31, your body actually slows down the cellular aging process. So you just double your chances just by not having a pregnancy before 31 of living into your 90s. And if you don't have your pre- first pregnancy before the age of 33, you triple your chances of living past 90 just by not having children because your body is prepared trying to slow down its aging process so that you could still have a child. Wow. Yeah. So like women who have children much, much earlier tend to age faster. You know, they're just learning all of this stuff. Uh, I always figured it was just from having to deal with the kids. Probably a little faster. bit of both. <laughs> I feel like I'm so in the dark about all this stuff. Like it never, it never occurred to me. I mean, probably because I'm a guy. It never occurred to me that that they wouldn't have that this thing these things wouldn't have been already yeah. researched no it's, it's interesting you know like I, I i don't know that was always another thing i kind of was interested in learning so i read up a lot i read a lot of books about it because at, this is kind of like a side note to my life like i i seriously considered being a midwife at one point because oh. all of us kids were home births my mom had a midwife for all of us and i was always really fascinated and kind of drawn towards that field um so i read a lot of books about it and my life path didn't take me that way um 
I'm grateful to know that two girls um, or women now that I went to high school with actually did become midwives, which is pretty cool. Um, But so I read a lot of books about that stuff and, and, you know, now there are nurse midwives, so they're medically, you know, Mm -hmm. educated and trained, but they're still uphold the same ideologies of midwifery, um, which is making it more natural rather than less, you know, less medical essentially no, I, tell me because just maybe because i'm a guy and because i don't have kids or maybe mm-hmm. both when i think of midwife I, I, I might be totally wrong i think of like women having babies in in pools in yeah swimming pools that's that can happen yeah that's so it's one way of no. doing it it's all different types of, of ways the idea is that like um a baby born at home is is it's less traumatic um on the child's birth into the world and their immune system because they're being born into an environment that their mother has been breathing and living in her whole pregnancy and she's less um uncomfortable you know and so the idea has the stress to the baby right the idea is that it's less stressful um at home so is the idea of midwife midwifery to have the baby at home sometimes yes um it's still illegal in some states um but I know that they now do nurse midwifery so that it's like you're in a hospital environment, but it takes the same idea of like, you know, no, no medications unless you need or want it. Very natural. They're mm-hmm. not going to. A lot of it, too, is that like they do these things. I, I don't know if we're way off topic here now because it's getting and it can get kind of gross. But something that happens in hospitals is that um, to make the birth easier on the doctor, they do something called an episiotomy. And they just do it every pregnancy, every childbirth. It's like the tissue that's around when you're having a child, they, they cut it open. So the baby just comes out. And so then you're like healing this giant wound afterwards. And it's like, our bodies are perfectly capable of of not having that happen. But it's easier for the doctor. Yes. To make it faster, basically. Yes. And then there was that whole like mentality that, you know, like they weren't, they didn't allow husbands in the room. And then, you know, like, I'd read a lot about women who experienced having children in the, you know, 40s and 50s and how that they, you know, were expected to, like, look pretty afterwards and have their makeup and hair done right after giving birth. And then... Oh, in the... In the years of the 40s. Yeah, not sorry. In, in their 40s. No, like, no, no sorry, the years of 1940, I don't know. Um, and so it's like, I guess what I'm trying to say is like, there's all these very little things that permeate our culture that we're unaware of that have these social pressures on women. Um, and from the time we're born until the time that we die, that we have these like expectations of always being presentable and right. clean and pretty and taken care of and... Um, you know, and that either says that we value ourselves or we have somebody who values us. Right. Mm -hmm. And those are again, like our worth. Um, and so breaking those myths and having these kind of conversations helps people understand the, I guess, the story of women. Right. Um, and the pressures that we have and, you know, I don't know, like the unique experiences we bring to the table. And so like my whole life has been kind of an observation of myself through, this world as a woman and being someone who's very alternative to that Mm -hmm. but that doesn't mean that i shun it right like just because i you know have face tattoos and you know i'm a tattoo artist it it doesn't mean that like i'm against going against normal society i'm i don't i don't know how to explain it i'm more like i don't know or doing your own path yeah 
Maybe that's what it is. Uh, I don't know. Something like that, I think. But anyways, we got off topic. Oh, wait. Did we? <laughs> yeah, kind of. That's, that's, that's okay. We're allowed to talk about whatever. Um, mm-hmm. All right. So you went to Philly. Yeah. That, that's in, in your life story. That's where we were at. Mm-hmm. Ooh, so I can connect it this way. I think all of these things um, are about my my own passion for standing up against the status quo, right? So mm-hmm. if someone tells me I can't do something because I'm a girl or because I'm a woman, because of my experiences and because of everything that I've read and seen and, and, and done and those those things, it makes me want to prove more, to turn that, to flip that script essentially. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Like coming into Philadelphia was coming into a very male-dominated traditional tattoo scene. And I just said, fuck all of you, I'm doing what I want, you know? And obviously there are some great tattooers in Philadelphia and some very serious traditional aspects that I don't have any disrespect for at all. It's more just that for the sake of tradition, I'm not going to uphold tradition. Right. You know, um, I'm going to work here and I'm going to do great tattoos and I'm going to be the best artist that I can be. And that should be enough. So when you went there, did you did you go into a, a shop, an existing shop? I did. I, I got a job with Tim Pangburn at Art Machine. Uh-huh. And so what happened from there? How long were you there for? Um, well, I first started by, um, uh, let's see. I can't remember how I got the job there. I think I started as a guest artist. I came out as a guest artist. Um, I hit Tim up. Um, and Tim is one of the most welcoming people I've ever met. He's very like, he's very open, very welcoming. And he was one of the first tattooers that I've ever met that was very open about sharing knowledge. Um, and it wasn't just like you had to kind of like watch to learn something. It was very much like, Hey, like I've tried this out, try this, try this, Mm. you know, like very much like wanting to share a lot of stuff and he was very much interested in in art as well um and so i think it was the first shop i ever worked at that was also an art gallery so it was like yeah it was like an art gallery and um and a tattoo shop and he had some trouble with some of the traditional shops in town because you know he was doing his own thing and i really admired his ability to just kind of like let it roll off his back and just be like, yeah, you know, like they're just stuck in these ways and I'm upsetting that a bit and that's their their issue, not mine. And I'm not going to retaliate, you know, because I'm just that I'm just giving it and feeding that fire. Right. So he was very much a turn the other cheek kind of guy just doing what he thought was best. And it worked. Um, Art Machine's a great studio and it's been around for years now. Um, but shortly after going there, I got diagnosed with cancer. Um, and so I quit because I didn't know what my future looks like. Sure. And, um, I couldn't expect a shop to hold a job for me. Um, and so I've, and you know, Tim was awesome. He was like, well, you know, obviously whenever you're better, if you need a job and I have space, you have room here. So, um, that started that journey. Uh, I had no health insurance. I mean, that must have been scary news. To, to Yeah, I remember the day I got my results. 
Um, I was still drinking at the time and I was really hungover. It was like shortly after New Year's. I think it was actually maybe January 1st. I don't know. It was sometime around New Year's. I know it was a Friday. We had just gone out the night before with Megan Massacre and a bunch of people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we were all like hungover and I was with my boyfriend at the time. Um, and I woke up to a phone call and I answered it and I was so hungover and it was my gynecologist saying that I had, she had the test results from a biopsy that I had had maybe two weeks previously and that I did in fact have cancer and that it was serious and I needed to come pick up my pathology and go make an appointment to see an oncologist right away. And that was the phone call that I had (laughs) on a Friday. So I literally hung up the phone. My boyfriend at the time was still sleeping in the other room. My dog was sitting there and I ordered a pizza. Uh, (laughs) The next, the very first thing I did was order a pizza (laughs) and a milkshake. And I sat in the living room quietly by myself until the pizza came and I ate some pizza and I drank the milkshake and then I called my mom. I didn't even wake up my boyfriend. So, and then it was like, oh my God, you know, like you start Googling cause you can't help it <laughs> and, sure, you're, sure. and you're like, holy shit, <laughs> they're going to kill me. I'm going to be gutted. And like, you know, I still don't, you know, your mind is just spinning because you don't know what any of this means and it's all foreign. And at that time I'm like, I'm 31, you know, relatively healthy, hadn't been to see a dentist since I was 15, you know, hadn't seen a doctor in a, like, since I was 15, I I had regular, like, gynecological visits, which is where they found I had cancer, you know, I, my mom always told us girls to, like, go to Planned Parenthood, you know, she was an advocate for us not having children at an early age, because she did. Yeah, so, you know, me, my sisters and I were raised very much educated on women's health and bodies and taking care of ourselves and where to find local Planned Parenthoods, wherever you are, you know. Um, So an early detection is key to surviving. Um, But I had never navigated the medical system at all, and I didn't know what to do. And at the time, it was, like, very early in Instagram, I think, and... Um, I think one of my sisters, maybe my little sister had the idea of doing a GoFundMe. Nobody had done that that Mm. I knew of at the time Um, because at the time it was – so there was this huge snowstorm that had just happened and um, I couldn't get in to see a doctor. And so it was like that happened on Friday and then Saturday and Sunday – Saturday there was a huge snowstorm so the clinics were closed on Saturday So I had to sit through, like, my imagination running wild until basically, like, Monday morning. And then I could get to the Planned Parenthood, pick up my pathology. And I'm reading my pathology and I'm, like, Googling it. And, of course, like, I'm not a doctor. I can't understand what any of this means. You know, basically just saying I have cancer. Like, I have a carcinoma, you know, adenocarcinoma. That's, you know, cancer present, yes. You know, (laughs) that's it. So everything else I don't understand. And. You know, I'm trying to get an appointment to see this oncologist through Penn and the woman basically tells me I can't get an appointment because I don't have insurance. This was the first year of Obamacare. So everybody's medical systems were just like in chaos. 
So short of taking my my pathology and walking into an emergency room and being like, help me where I would have no control over my care at all. Right. um, I could not get an appointment without an insurance number. Because all of the hospital systems had switched over where every American has to have insurance. So you have to have an insurance number entered into their computer system where you cannot get an appointment. Wow. So I go to social media and I post and I go, help. You know, this was like before the GoFundMe. It was like I posted, I don't know what to do. I don't have insurance. I can't get an appointment. Um. And within like a day or two, so I think this was like Monday or so, it all happened very fast. So it was like Monday, Tuesday, um, because I had been calling trying to get in with an oncologist while I was waiting to trying to get my pathology. Um, I get my pathology. I'm being told I can't get an appointment. I post about it. My little sister, um, who's had experience with with health issues before, is telling me no matter what, if they say they're going to call you back, call them back. Never wait because they will not call you back. You know, call them back, call them, call them, bug them, bother them. And so every morning I was up and as soon as hospitals were open, I was calling, you know, I had to fax my paperwork and then they lost it twice. So I had to call and like refax it and make sure nurses got it. And I posted on the internet um, and I got two people, two clients of mine uh, contacted me. One was surgical step-down nurse at Fox Chase Cancer Center. And she read my post, and she didn't work in gynecological oncology, but she walked over to their department and got the number for someone called a nurse navigator. So every hospital has someone called a nurse navigator. that You can call and speak with her and say, this is my problem, this is what I need, and she will literally help you find and navigate the medical system to get to who you need to get to in order to get that appointment. So she got me in contact with a social worker who explained why I couldn't get an appointment and how to get that number. Mm-hmm. And um, then my other client worked for the Department of Health. And so he walked down to his friend's office, <laughs> who is the head of women's health in Philadelphia, and helped me get the numbers I needed just to get into their system. And so I got an appointment within a week to see one of the best minimally invasive um, gynecological oncologist surgeons in the whole Philadelphia area. And I had an appointment with her, and she was like, yep, you have cancer. These are your options right now. And at the time, I still didn't have insurance, so I had a GoFundMe because the surgery was about $40,000. Holy mackerel. Uh Uh-huh. The, you know... um, and it saved my life. If I hadn't had that yeah. surgery, I probably wouldn't have survived because it turns out the cancer I had was very aggressive. Um, and that was mar- largely thanks to social media and the tattoo community. Um, That's tattoo Snob shared my mm-hmm. post and I raised like $20,000 wow. within a month. And I had my surgery that removed everything um, January 19th. Um, and most people were telling me when I was calling other hospitals that they couldn't even get me in to see an oncologist until March. It was, it was very insane. (laughs) Again, it was like all of these things kind of coming together all at once to make this one thing happen that saved my life and changed my life forever. That's really a crazy story. I mean, to go from, it seems like almost hopeless to, to kind of being pushed to the front of the line. 
start being, very quick. It's being, like I'm a very, yes, I'm a very proactive person. And I think that comes from being a little like, I don't know, impulsive, I guess you would say. My husband would definitely say impulsive. Um, that impulsivity to like jump, you know, to like act very quickly um, definitely has saved my life a lot of times. It's gotten me into a lot of trouble too, but it's definitely <laughs> saved my life a couple of times. Um, and to not do things the traditional way, to not really believe people, um, and to push things, you know what I mean? And I, I learned that a lot of people, and you know, it, it gave me a definite like sympathy and compassion for sick people or not able to bodied people because if you don't have the ability to advocate for yourself or to understand what advocating for yourself is mm -hmm. or to have somebody advocate for you it is very hard to live a healthy life and to get the care you need it's funny you say that because that's that's the exact phrase my mother always uses she says when you're with, with the doctor you have to advocate for yourself yep because they they're so quick to yeah gloss over things because for them it's they see it all the time see if they're mm -hmm. so quick to like leave out things yeah. and, and to forget about things mm -hmm. and this and that. maybe not intentionally but just i i don't think it's intentional i think that maybe the majority of the time things are fine but it's those but then so then you miss the things that when they're not right but yeah i mean or maybe it's hard for people to describe what's happening mm -hmm. you know i don't know um but yes advocation for yourself I think is a skill too, you know, something that a lot of people might not even like my, if my sister hadn't told me about making sure to call, I would have waited for those phone calls. Right. You know, it's, it's like with the IRS, they're not going to return your fucking calls. <laughs> you know what I mean? Do you know how many people are calling them sure. and accidents happen? You know, doctors and nurses work long shifts, you know, that paperwork might've been sitting there for eight hours because they got distracted and had to do other things. And then someone else came in for that shift and put that paperwork somewhere else. And then it's gone, you know, right. and it's little things like that, that you have to be aware of are just part of humanity. And so you have to take that extra step when it comes down to things that involve your life, you know, like, and it's not anyone's fault. It's just, you know, you have to keep an eye on your care yes. and, and advocate and demand that you get what you need. It's the same with, a, with, with lawyers too, you know, like, you know, and the law, like, do not listen <laughs> to anybody but your lawyer. <laughs> They're the only person advocating for you <laughs> <laughs> because you're paying them to. I think learning to advocate for yourself is kind of a learned skill. I mean, it definitely is. Like you said, go. I think going into it, you just think, "Oh my god, hey, they're gonna like so they're gonna call yeah. and say, and every doctor's gonna spend forever looking at my right. chart and and." Well, you, know. you, you get this very kind of. I mean, we're we're raised in this world where you know the world revolves around us, right? You know, whether we mean to or not, like, so we think, of course, they're going to call me back. I have right. cancer, you know, <laughs> yeah, right, right. you know, well, yes, they will. But timing wise, that that could be all that is that stands between you and your next stage. Right. right? Um, and so when you, you have to do everything you can. Right. And that's the same with anything in life. Like if it matters, you have to exercise all options and you can't wait around because that's that is going to be the difference right um but yes it's something that i had no idea about i didn't know the difference between an hmo and a ppo i didn't know anything about insurance you right. know um 
I didn't know anything about specialists or doctors or why, you know, like I didn't really understand any of that stuff. So mm-hmm. now I now I do. And so I like to talk about it because I like to educate other people about it. Um, I think that it's important for people to know what, you know, facilities and, you know, things that are at their control and disposal to do. You know, like you can always ask and demand to speak to another doctor. Mm-hmm. You should if you don't feel right about something. Um, you should always have somebody go with you so that they can take notes because there's going to be information flying at yes. you that you're just like, what? I, I agree with that. Doctors, they throw so much at you sometimes, especially if, if you have an illness. They, mm-hmm. they, they give you so much information at one time. Yeah. For most of us, it's it's really out of our wheelhouse. Oh, and it's, yeah. like, it's so hard to absorb everything. Like I said, having another person there or yeah. recording it or something yeah. so you can. I, is, I mean, is my good. doctors told me like what. I was going through, but, you know, like, um, I remember getting out of my surgery and like two or three weeks later when I was in for a follow-up, I noticed that my right leg was really swollen and I mentioned it to my doctor, my oncologist, and she is great, you know? And I remember her and she was like, oh yeah, that'll happen. Um, it's called lymphedema. It's because we removed your sanguine lymph nodes. Like I don't have any pelvic lymph nodes now because they take those to see if cancer has been metastasized. And I had never heard of the lymph lymphedema or lymph nodes really before that. I mean, I, I, I know they mentioned that and I knew that it, that was what that was, but I didn't know that the lymphatic system was integral to you operating as a human being. (laughs) It's basically the, the, the garbage men of your body, you know? Um, and so I Google it and I'm like, holy shit, like this is a big deal. It was very casual to her, you know, and I'm like, holy, oh my God, like if I don't manage this and take care of this, I could have elephantitis of my limb, oh, you know, like, and I could potentially lose my leg, you know? So like, it, and, it, and it comes down to even the clothing I wear has yeah. to be specific. Like I can't wear shorts, you know, anymore or, you know, those yeah. kinds of things. And so... But it's just an example of it's a very casual thing to her, you know. Yes. But her job is to is to fight cancer, is to cure you of cancer. And she did her job. Yes. And she did it very well. But all the other things that come after it, that's not her job, you know, unfortunately. I think that might have just been her because, I mean, some, you know, some doctors have better maybe bedside manners than others. Maybe. So some are better relating to people. Yes. I mean, maybe. But ultimately... Um, I think it's it's always smart to educate yourself as much as possible. And I do believe in specialists. Like, I do understand. I mean, there are lymphedema specialists, you know. Um, and so I see one now and, like, you know, it's a whole it's a whole other thing. You know what I mean? So, yeah. <laughs> so it's been a couple... That's been a couple of years of, you know, and right after that, that's when I did the TV thing, like two or three years later. So it's been, it's been a crazy life. <laughs> now I'm on a shop and. So you had this, this terrible experience, this cancer experience, and mm-hmm. thankfully you were able to. Yeah. To get through that. Yep. And, uh, so then what came next? Um, Next, I had another surgery a year later, um, 
and this time I had insurance luckily um, but it kind of put me out of work for a little while um, so I kind of wasn't associated with any kind of shops because uh, both surgeries were long recovery um, you know having robotic abdominal surgery is not easy wow. <laughs> uh, so it was really hard to get my body back um, I'm, I would say that it's been five years now and I'm just starting to feel back to normal. So before, really? yeah, before I got cancer, I think I weighed like 130 pounds and I ran. Um, I do a lot of cardio and I was at the gym every day um, for just cardio 45 minutes every day. Like I loved running. Um, after my surgeries, I could, I had a hard time walking um, and I was basically like, unable to to work or walk for a very long period of time um my surgery had complications um this is kind of interesting so the the typical surgery that i had which was called a radical hysterectomy where they take not only this the cervix and the uterus but they also take all of everything else um so they take the parametrium so that's what attaches to your spine um and all the ligaments everything to do with the reproduction yes and so they take all of that stuff um, because and every cancer is staged differently. But the stage I was at, this, the, the next stage up was kind of everywhere. Um, and so they took all of that. And so, you know, when you remove anything organ wise and, and ligament wise from your body, um, it affects everything else, you know. Sure. Um, but what happened was when they went to go take my lymph nodes, they pulled them out and they were blue and black. <laughs> and my surgeon had never seen that before. So they rushed the pathology on it. Normally they take those out and they'll send it to pathology and then you get some the results later after it's mm. gone through pathology. They left, they rushed the pathology on that. And so they left me on the table waiting for the results. So wow, I was actually- They, they on really rushed it. Yeah. So um, I was under anesthesia for seven hours. It was only supposed wow. to be two hours. So recovery from that long under anesthesia is brutal. It's so hard um, on your body. Um, it turns out that it was tattoo pigment. Get out. Nope. Like your body clearing out tattoo pigment. The only thing that I can think of, because we t I talked to my surgeon after that, because she was like, I've never seen that before. It was so weird. Pathology came back and said it was just pigment ink carbon mm -hmm. um pigment and it was completely safe and benign and wow. so uh, the only thing we can think of is that i've had a lot of cover-up work so you're pushing pigment into your body wow. and so my body your body's lymphatic system is what flushes things out For before sure. it goes through your the endocrine system i guess um for my basic knowledge and so it's just hanging out gathered on my lymph nodes just chilling wow. <laughs> the last thing you probably want to hear is your doctor saying, geez, I've never seen anything like yeah, this. Yeah, like what is this? <laughs> mm -hmm. I also donated my uterus to science. So I'm hoping they're like growing alien babies somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> they're putting a face hugger directly on. It'd be pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm hoping that I have some alien race out there that was grown in. Just started. Planet Rose. Yeah, that would be cool, but no. Uh, but yeah, so it took me a long time to recover from that. And so I decided to kind of, again, like slow down my, my chasing of my career mm -hmm. dreams. And I opened a private studio, um, in Philadelphia called Ceremony. And it was just meant for me, like just to tattoo my clientele. And at the time I was booked out about a year, um, because there's not really anybody doing the kind of work that I was doing in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. Um, and 
I had to, I had a lot of space, so I took on two other local artists, Cindy Vega and Andrew Johnson, um, who had their own client, and it was just kind of private studio, like they had their own key, and it wasn't like a regular studio. And at that time, I was, um, I'd been approached a couple of times by Ink Master, um, and again, like knowing nothing about television world at all, um, I hadn't really watched the show um, up until that point. I'd seen one or two. Um, but my little sister worked in television and movies for a couple of years in LA. Um, and so when I first started thinking about going on, she was like, okay, so the, 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 the way you get on those shows is she just like, you just have to do what they do to you, which is to blow smoke up their ass. Just like, (laughs) I want to be on the show so bad. I can't believe it. I know so much about it. You know, and you have to like pretend in this way. And, um, So I kind of, like, I didn't know if it was, at first I was like, no, fuck that. That's not tattooing, you know. But then it was like, after my my experience with cancer, I was kind of like, man, life is short. And I don't know how long I'm going to live. And this is, again, another experience that I want to know what that's like, you know. At this time, it was going to be the seventh or eighth season. And so I didn't really understand what I was getting myself into. Um, But I was like, I'm going to try this out. So they had asked me a couple times and um, then cancer happened. And so finally I was like, okay, I'll do it. And then the whole process is like, they really want you, but nothing's guaranteed. And so you don't know you're going until like a week before you go. Really? Yeah. Um, that and, must be hard for tattooers since you guys are all scheduled. Right. So it's like looking back on it now, I understand a lot more about what was going on, um, especially because after Ink Master, we did our own show. The, right. There's four of us girls. And so we I also got to see the flip side of it by being a host, which is completely different. Um, because Ink Master, it's like your very your environment is very enclosed. You know what right. I mean? Like you, you're, it's kind of that like, you will see what we want you to see because you're a participation on this. You're a participant to this competition, uh, which is totally legit. Like that's the way it should be because you're a competitor, you know. So I, I did that. And um, I have to be completely honest, like Ink Master was really fun. Yeah. It was like tattoo summer camp. You know what I mean? Like whatever you see on TV is like whatever is what they're putting together, the show that they're producing for you. But the actual experience is that you get to hang out for two months with a whole bunch of tattooers yeah. in the same place talking about tattoos. You know what I mean? And there's a natural competitiveness in tattooing anyways. And so you were really trying to do your best in sure. things that are like being thrown your way that you're just like, I don't do that style of tattooing. So it was fun. I had a really good time. To me, at least, it will be a much more interesting show if they try to leave the non-tattooing stuff out of it, which mm-hmm. they'll never do to the interpersonal drama. I'm not watching Ink Master to watch right. The Bachelor or something. I'm watching right. Ink Master to watch because I like tattoos, not because right. I want to see drama, whether it's real or manufactured. Right. Or whatever. I mean, and two things. I feel like one, I, I've always said it, it. It's it's a kind of weird scenario because I feel like realistically, no tattooer is going to be great at every style. It's just not no. realistic. Some people, some people can definitely hold their own in a yeah. lot of stuff but i mean that's that's part of the tv production right. of that's not real like no that's not real in tattooing because 
it's the opposite. Every tattooer wants to specialize because it takes, you know, jack of all trades, master of none, you know, like mm-hmm. you can't. And so yeah, I'm, I f- I'm not coming to, to Gia Rose to get a, a fine line, black and gray portrait. Hell no, because it's going to look like shit. Right. <laughs> I mean, you don't, you don't really want a, a tattooer that, that uh, there's nothing wrong with doing everything, but I mean, say right. it's not, it's just not real. It's a different league. Real world. Right. But it is, it is interesting to see the challenge of, how artistic you can be in that environment. And I mean, ultimately it's a popularity contest in some regards. Um, and each season is different. So, but for what it is and, you know, for what it's worth, um, I think it was, for me, it was a good experience. I think it could be done a lot better. It would have been, you know, um, but it wasn't until right after that, that I really started struggling with my post cancer body. Mm. So like, um after that when you say post cancer body do you mean body health wise or body image wise both okay so um you know at the time i was still kind of like coming out of just getting you know being cancer free and so i was still relatively felt the same you know what i mean um but then it was like after ink master um life got very stressful and it got very fast. There's all these things happening. And my body was like, yo, hell no. (laughs) This is not happening. Uh, You know, my ovaries had gone into shock. I had lost one of them. Um, I had been out of physical shape because I hadn't been able to exercise in a really long time. Like walking was, was hard sometimes. My right leg's bigger than my left leg. Um, throughout the year, I didn't realize I had been, my hip had been out of alignment, which was shorting one of my performance muscles, which then started putting pressure on my sciatic nerve. So I was having sciatica really bad. And if you've never had it, it's excruciating. Um, and so, and then my hormones are all over the place because of premenopause and my body going up and down into medical menopause. And I just do you put have to in do any kind of, um, hormone. Replace it. Yeah, hold on for 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 your. Cancer. I couldn't because I'm high risk cancer. So if I I couldn't do HRT because it increased my breast cancer chances. Really? Yeah, by three times. So. Yeah, that's a big risk. Yeah. Um. So I ultimately put on about sixty pounds, and during this time I'm on camera. Um. Or I guess 60, 50, 40. I put on 40, 45 pounds. That's still a lot. Whatever. It's all the same. I got to admit, that season was a lot. I don't remember seeing it, but... Uh, yeah, no, it was it was, at, it was after that season. Oh, after. Okay, after. Um, it was after that season it started. Um, and I was just in so much pain. Like, it was hard to walk. Like, my bones ached. Um, because of my, the lymphedema in my leg, I was retaining a lot of fluid. Um, Is that why... The legs were different sizes because of lymphedema or was it like yeah. swelling or atrophy or something? It was lymphedema. I have lymphedema in my right leg. Um, so that's why my leg's bigger. Um, and then I just started retaining fluid. So mm. water. I was just retaining water. So I would fluctuate between 10 and 15 pounds of water in a day. Wow. My, my hips would just hurt at the end of the day. Um, like my face got really swollen. And all of this was while I'm on camera with angels. With angels with me. Um, and the show was on the road, so we were filming three days, which are 15-hour days. Um, and then you're down a day doing interviews and whatever, and then you're flying to the next city. Filming three-hour days, 15-hour days, and then you're flying to the next city. Um, and for a healthy individual, it's hard work. Right. 
you know, um, and I was not doing well at all. And it was very hard. And the crew on the show is so incredible. Like to get a show up and running like that on the road is takes so much work. Um, but my co-stars didn't really understand what was happening to me. Nobody really understood what was happening to me. Everybody just saw that I was, I was hurting a lot. I was in the hospital three times on the road. Um, and it, it was just, it was, it was miserable. Um, and so again, like it was a shift in my life of being like, you know, I'm not fitting in with everything and everybody, I'm not able to perform. And so my doctors were finally just like, nope, can't fly anymore. Since the travel show it was done. So they just wrote me out. We got me out of the contract and that was that. And I slipped into a very, very, very deep depression. <laughs> you know, it's like the train left without me, you know, and I, you know, looking back, I can see it's not, it wasn't my path, obviously, mm -hmm. but I, I was at that point when we started that show, it's, it wasn't the show. It was that I had met three other women who were equally as hardworking and talented as myself that I felt in not to like say that in a narcissistic way, but to be like, Oh my God, I have peers, you know, right. like yes. tattooing is such a lone individual thing anyways. And then also being a woman is even lonelier, you know? And so in the communities of tattoo industry, you're not one of the boys and you're not a tattoo wife. You know what yes. I mean? They're very different worlds. And so I was like, holy shit, I have peers. I have friends and we actually get along and like each other. And holy shit, this is awesome. And then I was no longer a part of that, Yeah. you know? And so it was very hard to lose that. Um, and it was very, it was very cut off because we had contracts and the show went on and you know what I mean? Yes. So, um, since then, it's been two years of working really hard to get my physical health under control. And that has been, um, I quit drinking, I quit smoking, I cut back on coffee, caffeine, I'm working on sugar right now, I cut out all grains, anything inflammatory, and I do yoga and meditation every morning, um, and I just, I draw all the time, and I built this beautiful studio with my husband and I got married. Yeah, so like, touch on that a little bit. How did you get from Ink Master Angels? Mm hmm Having health problems. Did you still have your shop in Philly at that point? No. Um, so after Ink Master, when I went away to Ink Master, uh, the person I was seeing at the time was kind of running my studio for me while I was gone. And kind of ran it into the ground. <laughs> it wasn't running that great. I mean, it was just a private studio. It wasn't really a big deal. And um, after that, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I had been working up in New York a lot with with Megan at her studio, Grit, um, previous to that for the year. And so I was thinking of moving to New York. Um, and I had met my future husband there. And he was working in New York. And so I didn't really know what I was going to do with Philly. Um so then when Angels happened, I just kind of shut the studio, studio down and, and left Philadelphia, moved outside of Philly. I was like, I just want to break because um, I didn't know what I was going to do. And then Angus and I decided to open a studio together um, so that we could have a relationship and a marriage because he's a chef and manages kitchens and stuff. And I'm a tattooer and 
uh, we would never see each other. <laughs> so it was either two jobs yeah. that encompass your whole life. <laughs> yeah. So Absolutely. and you know, and he quit drinking and that's so like the only way we would see each other is that is the lifestyle, right? And yes. neither of us wanted to do that anymore. So when I was filming Angels, he started scouting out locations for to open a studio and we were just gonna do something small, you know, something to build that he could manage. Cause I was like, I'm never opening a studio. I can't manage a studio. Just can't. Um and he's got a natural ability to manage people. He's really good at it. Um, and so he's one of my favorite people in the world. And so we we did that. We found this, and that's where we're at. Were you looking spe- like specifically in this area, or were you kind of just looking wherever? We are kind of looking wherever. Uh, we were interested in New York for a while, but then we were like, man, there's so much in New York. And he's born and raised in Manhattan. And I think we wanted something a little bit more quiet New York's a pretty saturated market of tattooers yeah and I mean I still go up there and work with my buddies at Soho and I love them and we love the city his family's still there we have an apartment on the Upper West Side oh. um, it's rent controlled so we keep it nice. <laughs> he inherited it from his dad definitely hold on to yeah that. you know and his grandma is in the same building and she's had that place for 30 years you know so his whole family is in, in New York so um so we still have that. So we go up there a lot and I do consider it like part of our home, you know, but it's an hour on the Amtrak from here. So it's like an hour and a half. That's not too bad. No, not at all. Um, from Penn Station to Paoli, which is 10 minutes from here. So oh. and I like this small town of Westchester. It's cute and quiet and there's great artists, but I'm close enough. It seems like a nice little town. It is. And it's like close enough to everything. Like we still go to Europe all the time and do conventions starting in the fall, you know, and um, we're close to Richmond. It's where he gets tattooed by Teresa Sharp. And it's like right on the way from everybody, you know, so we like it here. How far from Philly are you here? Uh, we're like 35 minutes. Traffic. Yeah, no, we're like right outside of Philly. We're considered a suburb of Philly. Oh, okay. We're not even technically a town, I guess. We're the county seat of oh. Chester County. <laughs> so we're not even Fancy. we're not even like an official town, I don't Fancy think. Stuff. <laughs> so this is a college town, right? It's yeah, like University of Westchester. Yeah. At least two other tattoo shops, right, that are mm-hmm. fairly close to this. Yep. Oh, they hate us. Oh yeah. Well, one of them came around and apologized for hating us, which was nice. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, tattooers, it's all about turf and whatever, but the studio that, you know, and and my husband definitely wants everybody to be cool, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like he doesn't like, you know, it's it's very he likes a good healthy amount of like mutual respect, you know, for mm. everybody. Um and so it was a little harder for him. And he was like, I don't understand. Like, what are these people's problem? And I'm like, I'm like, it's not like the restaurant industry, you know, like where you can get kind of pissy with each other. But people take it really personally when you move into their area. Yeah. Um, but I was like, it doesn't matter because what we're doing, nobody does. You know what I mean? Like we're, okay. our clients literally fly into us. We're destination. People come to us. We don't we don't need any other kind of advertisement. Yeah, well, that's kind of what I was going to say, because this is yeah. an all custom shop. Yep. And I mean, your other shops are more like street shops. Street shop walk-ins. We don't do any of that stuff. So all the artists here um, have their own clientele and are responsible for their own clientele, you know. And so 
Um, and we've set this place up so that it's we want this to be the long haul for an artist, right? So like the way we have it set up is that they can move up within the amount of money that they can make percentage wise. If they want to, um, our guest artists just pay a flat fee to come through. Um, so there's no percentage taken if they want to come through. Um, we have healthcare. We're one of the only tattoo wow. shops that got healthcare for their oh, artists. Um, all of our artists are above board, pay their taxes, um, fully insured. Um, and we've, we do education and discussion on retirement. So, you know, our artists like have families and kids come from other countries, older tattooers. Um, they're all really good at what they do. Um, one of our artists, we sponsor their visa. We try to talk and think about the long haul. Like you make good money, invest it in yourself. You know what sure. I mean? Like think about retirement. Think about when you get sick. Think about having insurance. Like because so many of us in our industry don't at all. So, because we're just a bunch of big kids, <laughs> until somebody falls and breaks something. I mean, not having healthcare is always a big issue for tattooers, mm -hmm. especially as you get older, man. Like, your body starts to break. You need to see yeah. a doctor. You need to see a dentist. You know what I mean? Like, you need to think about retirement now in your thirties. Start now because yeah. there's nothing waiting for you on the other end. You right. know what I mean? Like, you are not paying into Social Security. <laughs> Right. You, you don't you don't you don't get that you know you, you don't pay into social security a lot of tattooers don't oh that's what i'm saying yeah, yeah. like a lot of tattooers don't pay their taxes you know what i mean they yeah, don't pay taxes it's cash, cash yeah you know and it sucks to pay cat taxes but you got to do it you know right. and there's ways to run um a company that you can pay into retirement for yourself you know like they say when you have a business, you make some money, like pay yourself first, but that's meant to like pay your, you know, pay for your retirement, you know, like set right. aside something for your retirement. That's what we try to talk to everybody about because everyone here is pretty much in their thirties. So, or, you know, within, I think our youngest is 24 and our oldest is 38, but mostly everyone's in their thirties. There's, there's no too early to think about retirement. No. It's <laughs> unfortunately how, yeah how do you want to live yeah. <laughs> you know how are you going to like age into it so like my husband and i we don't own a house right now we rent because we've decided that we want to when we want to whenever we decide to do that we want to build a house because it's going to be what we retire into you know we sure. want to age into it so you know, and my husband's 11 years younger than me, so he doesn't think a lot about that stuff yeah. as far as like, you know, single floor versus two stories. And I'm already like, I don't know if I'm going to take those stairs at 60. <laughs> I was like, I guess I have you to carry me, but. <laughs> yeah, well, one, one day he'll be. Yeah, <laughs> no, he's smart. <laughs> but it's an interesting life being a tattooer. Uh, you're definitely to be a tattooer. You are a tattoo. You are a tattooed person, and you have made a commitment to not live a normal life. I'll say half yes. Okay. I think making a commitment to not live a normal life is is spot on from what I see. I mean, mm -hmm. it's certainly all-encompassing of, of so much so much time and, and effort and but I, I feel like I feel like nowadays I see a lot of tattooers that don't have that many tattoos or have none or just like you know a couple little things and, and 
it's in real direct contrast to how it was I'm sure when you started and when I first started getting to where tattooers were, were covered usually mm-hmm. I mean, to some, uh, now you see people that, that are tattooing they got a piece maybe a thing here a thing there I mean mm-hmm. obviously a lot of tattooers still have a lot of work right but I mean I think you see people without work numbers that you never did before mm-hmm. it's just a lot I, I it's interesting we just had this conversation the other day uh, with one of our artists Eric um, who's from Brazil and he was talking about how you know, one of his first apprentices, he's been tattooing for 11 years and he owns his own studio there. And he's really known for his bio work and he works with Guy Atchison actually occasionally. Um, he's done some books with him. And, you know, he was talking about how one of his first apprentices, he tattooed his hand because he was saying, you know, you're committed now. You're a tattooer now. What are you going to do? You can't get another job anywhere else. Like, what are you going to do? You can't, you can't do anything else. Yeah. So you better be good at what you do. And, um, you know, that kind of mindset isn't in the tattoo industry anymore because they're so acceptable. You can get jobs with physical yes. tattoos now. Yes, for sure. And so what that means for the future of tattooing, I, I would have to say I don't know. Um, I mean, I, I on one hand, I love the visibility of it because I, I feel like it creates a sense of, of normalcy and acceptance mm-hmm. um, for, for that. And then on the other hand as part of the tattoo industry, it does seem like a little bit like it kind of like lessens the, the work if you're not also wearing it, you know what I mean? Like, I don't know. I don't know how to explain that. Like you're not like you're, are you a dedication? Yeah. Like, are you a tourist or or are you really in this? Does it matter? What you have now is where people can, people just come up and say, yeah, I'm going to be a tattoo. Or I'm going to worry. In the past, yes. it was something that that was that was much harder to achieve, and it was, mm-hmm. and it was it was a much smaller, what it was less socially right. acceptable and less uh, prevalent. It was there was just less of a, an amount that right. people that wanted to do it. You know, the one thing I'll, that I will say that I'm a firm believer is that tattooing has always had a way of regulating itself. People really want to be tattooers and they wash out within a couple of years because they can't hack it. And a lot of that comes down to like really actually being able to fall, fall through, follow through on the demands that it takes to be any good at it. Um, And I feel like to me, it's a healthy dose of self-confidence and humility. Um, And I see that happen all the time that there might be a lot of people who are like, I want a tattoo or I'm going to be a tattoo artist and they start and then they wash out. But it's always been that way. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it has a way of weeding people out, you know? Yeah. And a lot of tattooers who are good will only take maybe one apprentice their entire careers, maybe two, you know? And so it does tend to protect itself, you know? And where it's going I don't know all I know is that since I've been doing it there have been the sounds of the alarm bells to the end of our industry going on (laughs) and it's never gotten worse it's only just gotten better so you know like I, I don't know if those changes are good or bad but I do know that progression in any industry is a good thing made me think what you said about the alarm bells I'm in I'm in the electrical union and the last company I worked with 
we were always talking, oh, Union's not going to be around for much longer and, and blah, blah, blah. And my foreman's always saying, yeah, that's what my father said when he was in Union like 50 years ago. They were saying, yeah, it's not going to be, it's still here for the, for the mm-hmm. time being at least. So I, I think you have that in a lot of, in a lot of situations. Yeah, I think what it is is that it's like, again, just changes, right? So things are always going to change. That saying like the only thing, constant thing in this world is change. And that's true. So will it ever be the same? No. But this moment right now wasn't the same as it was before. It's always going to be different. And I think it's being comfortable with that reality, you know, and all you can do is either move with it or you can and be flexible and that flexibility allows you to bend with and with the change or you can be rigid and that rigidity is going to either break you or prevent you from moving forward and i feel like that's along every aspect of life whether it's your upbringing or your experience in the world your education your health Um, If I look at every big moment in my life, the only thing that's ever gotten me through it is my ability to flex with the things that don't work the way I wanted them to work and my ability to move with those things. Um, Because if I had turned and fought against those tides, my life would be completely different. And I think that I wouldn't have the amount of grace that I've had to survive the things that I've survived, if that makes sense. And so I think I see the tattoo industry and my role in it kind of similar, you know? Mm -hmm. It's a good philosophy. It's a good philosophy, and I think it's a good place to to, to cut it. Yeah, we're starting starting to go along. We don't want... I got to go tattoo. (laughs) (laughs) It was such a pleasure to talk with you, man. Thank you. It was great. Great to have you. Great to hear about your super interesting life. I hope it's interesting and it wasn't. Uh, I thought it was really boring. interesting. I <laughs> hope like, people I like listening like to listen it. for hours more about it. But, um, <laughs> we only scratched the surface. Man, you should be my therapist. Her jaw's on the floor all the time. Just like, holy shit. <laughs> well, thank you, Gia, for being here. Yeah, and thank you. Thanks for being such a great guest. Yeah. And everyone, check out Gia and White Oak Tattoo Company in Westchester, Pennsylvania. And uh, thanks for listening and like and subscribe here and on YouTube and whatever podcast platform you listen to and check out the website under our skinpodcast.com. There's links to everything. And uh, and that's it. And thanks. See you next time. Yeah. See you next time. Bye-bye. Bye.